Together, feminism and open science can collectively challenge the historical domination of Western-centric and heteropatriarchal approaches to knowledge. Researchers should not adopt a one-size-fits-all approach to open science. Open science should further welcome marginalized communities to unpack what the open science movement means for them so that ECRs know how not to be complicit with the silencing, devaluing or marginalizing of others. That is a passage from a brilliant paper called Navigating Open Science as Early Career Re uh, Feminist Researchers. And I'm very thrilled to be joined by two of the authors of that paper. We have the, the lead author, Maddie Pownall, who is a lecturer in psychology at the University of Leeds. And her research looks at sort of uh, psychology of education and also gender research as well. And Alex Lutterescu, who is a postdoc at King's College London, the IOPPN. And her research looks at uh, maternal mental health and early child development. Welcome both to the show. Hello, I'm pleased to be here. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So did I get your name right, Alex? Yeah, it was actually it was actually not too bad. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I'll take that. Uh, great. Well, I guess for those who haven't read it, um, could one of you uh, just give me a, a pricey of the of the paper? I think yeah, I think I'll do that. So, in in so in that excerpt, it says about not adopting a one size fits all approach to open science. And I guess the main kind of motivation behind writing this paper was that a few of us were kind of having these pockets of conversations kind of talking about how it feels like there is a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach to open science so we were kind of so I was I was chatting to Alex and to other people and these kind of you know coffee and chat around academia and life and it seemed like a lot of people and a lot of the authors of the paper who I know in various kind of different spheres um were kind of trying to grapple with open science and asking questions like you know can I really participate in open science is it like a safe space? Is it a kind of conversation I want to be a part of? Um, and actually, are there some quite legitimate and meaningful reasons why I don't want to be part of these conversations? And what are they? And there was a paper actually, and I, I should probably find, I can't remember who the authors were, but it was amazing. There was an amazing paper that I read that was called Common Academic Experiences That Nobody Talks About um, that changed everything. And like, we can maybe like post a link somewhere. Um, and it changed everything for me because for what that paper was doing is kind of bringing to the forefront the stuff that most people only really hear about when they're like having a coffee with their kind of academic pals. And I guess so part of this paper was to try and kind of mirror that approach by getting a load of feminist identifying early career researchers together and writing really explicitly about this stuff that we kind of talk about in the coffee breaks at conferences where we're kind of saying things like, you know, Oh, but some sometimes open science doesn't feel that welcoming, but sometimes it can be an ally and kind of bringing to the forefront all of the kind of slightly weird nuances of engaging in open science, particularly from coming from a feminist position and from being people early in our careers. So I don't know, Alex, is there anything that I've like missed or anything you want to say about where this came from? <laughs> Um, no, I think I think you've covered most of it. But I was just as you were speaking, I was just thinking of, you know, I came from this from from the perspective of someone who was 
very into uh, open research and sort of only seeing the positives uh, of the open research movement. And I think it wasn't until I started working with all of you on this paper that I started to actually think about it from a more critical perspective and exactly what you were saying, you know, whose voices are actually heard in open research, who has a place at the table. And for those who don't, why is that the case and how can we make it more welcoming? Yeah, yeah, same. Because I, I remember I like was getting very excited about open science, very, very excited. And like, so for context, Alex and I met at the UKRN Reproducibility Advanced, what was it called? Advanced Methods, it was a very advanced week retreat thing um, that was kind of all about how can we do open science? How can you do it well? There's this thing, there's this conversation. Um, and yeah, I kind of used to come from the perspective that was like, this is a really cool, great thing. Um, and because in my specific area of social psychology and the specific theory that I started using my PhD became the kind of poster child for the replication crisis. So I was doing like stereotype threat, kind of priming stuff <laughs> um, and then quickly moved away from that, that it felt like open science was offering this kind of really interesting alternative way of doing things. But then when you start speaking to more people um, and people who come from like different kind of research positions or different life positions, then we had some really interesting conversations at the start of this paper where we all kind of got our position out and were like, right, who's for, who's against? And then we quickly realized that that was actually a really black and white way of looking at things. And I think the word of our meetings that we was like, you could do a drinking game where you take a shot every time someone says the word nuance, because we just kept saying, oh, well, it's very nuanced, isn't it? And it's very messy and it's very, and actually it's not as simple as that. And I think that if there's one take home from the paper, it should be, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. And I think with lots of open science papers and thought pieces and opinion pieces and empirical studies, that what we felt was missing is this appreciation of, Sometimes it's not always as simple as, you know, just pre-register or just make your data open and things like that. Fascinating. So uh, so you've covered a lot there. So I'm going to try to, uh, as they say, unpack. Mm. Um, what I'm interested in is the what you said about uh, that open science could be against uh, sort of feminist research or I guess there are barriers that are I guess particular to feminist researchers and also how open science could be an ally so may let's start with the negative first and perhaps um, in your paper you touch on really important topics that are relevant to ECRs but there are also those that impact I think sort of particularly feminist ECRs in particular and those for marginalized groups so attack either you know the broad strokes but maybe then just do a deeper dive into the sort of feminist specific issues i can yeah i I don't mind starting um so maddie and i were having a a quick chat uh just before you you joined the call about this and to us this the first barrier that that we sort of identified was you know getting people to actually engage with the material uh because there's so much stigma around um the label of feminism And it's relatively similar to, you know, it it disrupts the status quo. And that's in a similar way to how open research disrupts the status quo. Um, 
so it is not easy to label yourself as a feminist. It's sometimes, although increasingly so more acceptable, not easy to label yourself as someone who supports open research. And definitely not very easy to, to write a paper labeling yourself as a feminist and an open researcher and kind of put that out there um, for, for everyone to, to criticize. But I think from our point of view, we felt like it was really important to combat a lot of the, the sort of myths and stereotypes around the, the roles of women in society, but also the roles of researchers, um, women researchers or women identifying researchers who may face unique barriers, both within research as a whole, but more specifically within open research that haven't really been tackled yet. Yeah, and I guess that is part of that, that for me, one of the biggest things is that to this kind of much bigger idea around like, what do we mean by openness? And like, what are we making open? And I think we have um, like something in the paper that's called something like, um, or we write, or we need to consider what are we also like opening up in the process? And because it's kind of that thing where like, yes, openness is wonderful and having like open data, open code, open like uh, field notes, everything's open and lovely and everything can be accessed and that's a wonderful thing. But I guess one of the things that we were talking about a lot in the paper and a lot because we had many, many, many Zooms. <laughs> we loved to Zoom when we were writing this because it was very kind of like iterative and there was a lot happening is we were talking about actually that if you have, you could almost like plot it on like a graph that as openness goes up, as we argue, vulnerability goes up because if things are more open, then you're more vulnerable to having things like genuine mistakes outed. And I think one of the things that I grapple with a lot is that, you know, we want to identify mistakes in the published literature. That's kind of part of the point. Um, but also I think what I was noticing was missing from a lot of the current open science discourses is that we are human people doing research, right? So like, yes, we want to out mistakes. And if things have gone wrong, we want to know about it. And we want to have nice systems to be able to like retract papers and do that really nicely. But I think that what is currently kind of a barrier to that is the fact that a lot of people are writing about it and talking about it, that actually a lot of open science spaces don't have the kind of kindness and like almost kind of like humility required to in order to make that level of vulnerability with openness feel safe to a lot of early career researchers so we, a lot of us were talking you know we were like oh the thought of publishing a, the first paper from your PhD and being really proud of it and it being on a topic if it is a, a kind of feminist topic that is already something that's seen as you know um maybe more likely to be scrutinized because it's deemed already as less scientific and you're deemed already as being less competent because of various like demographics and then the thought of then offering kind of other avenues to for that to be you know criticized i guess is something that i think no one was really talking about and it's one of those things that you're like oh well it's good for the science and it's good for science and good for science but if what's good for science and if what's good for scientists are in conflict like that's the issue that's an issue because that leads to you know people being pushed out of science and that leads to this leaky pipeline where there's gender imbalance and i think that that is something this whole like openness vulnerability continuum i think is something that we don't talk about we the royal we being we science people don't talk about anywhere near enough um 
And so I think we also talk in the paper about the need for science to be like compassionate and all of that kind of stuff, which just seems a bit kind of soft and a bit like, oh, you know, please everyone be nice to each other. But I think it's crucial because I think that they're the kind of things from speaking to other early career researchers that makes the difference between I feel included here and I don't, you know? Yeah, and just to, to, to add to that, Maddie, um, I think another another of the words that we kept sort of talking about and, and going around in all of our, you know, all of our Zoom meetings was intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to the point that you were just making, given that, you know, we as we say in the paper, um, women researchers are regarded as less competent. Uh, people who do research in the field of feminism are regarded as less sort of scientific or less sort of serious. And then obviously you have additional intersectional intersectional identities that compound that. And if you take, you know, that whole situation and say, yes, put your open code on the internet to have it scrutinized and potentially, you know, ruin your career at you know the worst case scenario level that people may imagine it is difficult um and we are asking a lot of of early career researchers when we ask them to engage with open research and that's something that we have to acknowledge yeah and i think it's that whole just because to me like the point of the paper like it's not an empirical paper it's written by feminist early career researchers for pretty much for feminist early career researchers and we've had a huge response to it of people saying oh my goodness, this is the stuff that I talk about with my friends and that no one's talking about, no one's saying it. And I feel like it's not even necessarily like a load of stuff needs to change because there is going to be that thing, you know, making things open does make you a little bit more vulnerable and that's kind of good for science and like, okay. But I think that what we were trying to do in the paper is at least let's like have a conversation about it, you know, like at least let's acknowledge that this is a difficult thing. And there's all kinds of, open science like training events and like workshops and stuff that I've gone to that comes from a position that we are assuming that this stuff is a easy and b beneficial to everyone and uh, I guess like a big thing that we were trying to get across in the paper that we talked about a lot is that a lot of this stuff really isn't easy and not necessarily not being easy as in like oh I don't know where to put my data like the logistical kind of how do I actually do this easy in terms of kind of getting there like in your head wise where it's like I am prepared to do this and I particularly when people don't have support from their supervisors or advisors or their institutions and I guess that for me one of the big things about this paper is just trying to kind of say can we just like slow down a second before we start mandating like open data or man or or mandating pre-registration or viewing for example pre-registered studies as better than non-pre-registered studies and can we just have a think about what the actual experience is of doing this um and i guess something oh sorry alex did we even say something no it's just i was was just going to say that the way way i see it is that my my hope is that acknowledging the barriers and being honest about the sort of issues that we're seeing uh, in the process of acknowledging, uh, of of engaging with open research, is not necessarily going to deter people. And I don't think it should deter people from engaging with open research. But I hope it's going to make people who have concerns and who have felt alone in this feel more understood and feel part of a sort of larger movement where we say, yes, there are barriers. There are certain things that we need to consider moving forward but 
there's a lot of people in this community who feel the same way and we will sort of hopefully find a solution together. Yeah and I guess that's something that we haven't yet talked about is because we've kind of talked a lot about you know coming from the assumption that all of this stuff is a good thing so like open data is a good thing pre-registration is a good thing so how can we help people to engage with it and I guess a much bigger issue um, that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I think with quite a lot of open science tools that have been offered so for example pre-registration because I think that that's one of the kind of ones that's been talked about quite a lot that actually there are some cases where in terms of like the research paradigm so like feminist research is, is very typically qualitative more kind of like creative or critical methods it might be more participatory it might be more community-led those kind of things that actually there is in some cases like this kind of epistemological incompatibility with a lot of the open science tools with feminist research so for example if we think like um i don't know the point of if, if you or if you believe that the point of pre-registration is to avoid questionable research practices and to like set your research questions ahead of time get your hypotheses ahead of time those kind of things then the actual the questionable research practice that it is trying to address is just not compatible or not a particular issue with things like creative methods or qualitative methods and so i've because there's kind of two approaches i think you can kind of like shoehorn uh, qualitative critical feminist research into uh, the open science tools that were being offered or you can actually do, take more of a harder stance and say oh but that that's not really compatible with with how we're doing our research um and so kind of like happily opting out of that and i guess that one of the things that we didn't have that much room to say in the paper but i've been because i did a kind of roadshow of presenting this paper at like <laughs> all these places last year and one of the things that i was saying quite heavily is that there are some instances where it's not about trying to kind of think about how you can engage there are some instances where there's really legitimate reasons why it's just it's just not answering the same question it's not they're not compatible like with open data there are there are many 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 instances of people doing research where it is just not appropriate or um kind of yeah compatible you're just not able to make that open and i guess that one of the challenges is when we view you know like the papers with the badges and they're like they've got all this stuff and we like we give them a round of applause because they've got open science badges when that becomes something that's viewed as more scientifically rigorous than papers that don't without taking into account that there's really legitimate reasons for that um so yeah i think the whole issue of like epistemology and like what is it that we're, we're actually trying to address with some of these tools and is it compatible um i think is also something that's been like notably absent from the conversation and what i'm actually so i'm uh co-editing a special issue of the british journal of social psychology at the moment looking at qualitative research in social psychology and open science and all of those kind of submissions that we're in the process of looking at are all about things like epistemology and like is this actually something that is this the game we want to play or could we start another game over here that's looking at slightly different looking at this in a slightly different way um so i think that the field is definitely moving in an interesting direction um but there's still all kinds of stuff that i don't think we've come close to properly challenging or thinking about the great thing about the paper is that it does speak to a lot of people right so it says the things that they know and they probably don't confess or they 
only think a subgroup of people know about it. So could you just flag those up that you, those common things that you've heard and witnessed? In, in terms of the barriers, common barriers? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's things like, so we've got like this big section on vulnerability and about actually the need to participate in these conversations while also looking after yourself. And I think that that's a big one, really big one. Um, and particularly when we talk about things like, you know, broken science on Twitter and that kind of thing. And it seems like every day, or not, not every day, once a week on Twitter, there is somebody getting dragged for having a bad study. And I think that one of the things that we wanted to kind of flag in the paper and to like readers is to say like we see you and we see that and we know that that is a concern and actually like another thing and I remember we had this conversation when we were writing that like academia is a really hard thing it's like this is a hard job it's like hard and doing a PhD is really hard and actually I guess another barrier is this perception and sometimes it's a really accurate perception sometimes it's not around that open science is kind of this other thing to do. So it's like another standard to judge the work by. It's another way of differentiating like the good from the great. It's another kind of administrative thing. It's another training course. It's another thing to know about. And I guess we were also trying to flag in the paper, like if you, because if, I remember in the, one of the first earlier drafts of the paper, we had these like five tips and then we ended up just embedding them through. And one of them was really dramatic. It was called like, just do what you need to survive. Just do what you do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. Get your PhD, like get your postdoc, do what you need to do. And I think that that is particularly a kind of prominent issue when you are doing research that, because I guess there's kind of two types of feminist research. There's, there's like feminist researchers who kind of look at academia through a lens of like, whose voice is being included? Um, like, is this equal? Are we, do we have a concern for diversity? Do we have like a decolonized approach to academia? And then there's also kind of research that is explicitly about like feminist stuff. So like research, for example, like some of the research I do is about like sexual objectification of women, which kind of sits in like, that's a feminist thing. Um, and it's published in like the feminist journals. Um, and I guess that because with both of those kind of approaches, that there is so much evidence that shows how research from those kind of paradigms is just viewed as like, it's viewed as less scientific, it's viewed as less serious, it's viewed as less credible. And I think also just making it clear that if the kind of, the, the thing that you do is you do your research and you're already competing with kind of this perception of your workers not being serious, not being important, not being credible, then actually, if you want to completely sidestep this open science conversation that's going on and, you know, kind of say, oh, that's lovely for you, but I'm gonna happily opt out of these conversations, then I guess trying to offer people like a legitimate way of doing that, like that's like, it's okay, like this is a hard thing. Um, and I know that there's all kinds of conversations around how, you know, open science shouldn't be about extra work it should be about you know changing where work is in the kind of um like project plan so like pre-registration is about you know front loading work so that when you get your data you know exactly what you're doing and that kind of thing but i think the reality is it's really not like there's a lot of this stuff that, that does just require training and thinking about and learning and like the you know i think that a lot of us were talking about actually have we kind of like, you know, missed, <laughs> have we missed a memo that teaches us how to do all of this stuff? Um, because a lot of it is 
difficult and difficult to do right. And I guess there's loads of other anxieties around wanting to do it well. Like the first pre-registration I wrote, unusable, completely unusable. No idea, doesn't make any sense. Barely written in English, doesn't make any sense. And I guess it's that thing of like, who is there to to kind of help us through this, which I guess is a tension for all early career researchers, but particularly when you're doing research that's already viewed as being slightly less worthy than other research, it's heightened. Yeah, and I think uh, another sort of related point that we were we were making in the paper, which I think is relevant to, to Sam's question, is the idea of invisible labor, uh, particularly with regards to ECRs, but also feminist researchers, um, and I think we were we were talking about how you know in the uh, UK Athena Swan uh, the burden of um, gender equality was largely placed upon women and other marginalized groups, and it's quite similar when it comes to advocating and promoting open research. Now is that this is largely done by ECRs who are doing it in their sort of spare time on on top of their all all of the other characteristics. Women do also engage in a lot of sort of extra tasks like you know science communication and administration and serving in committees um and you you get to a point where you have to sort of do um, a pro and con analysis of like yes i do want to um to sort of i want to promote open research i want to speak up but also do i have the time where i can do this in a way that is not negatively impacting my career because you know i'm not going to have as much time to publish real science papers um yeah i maybe the listeners would like to know any kind of personal experience you've had of like barriers you have faced and that could be where you can see in in plain sight it's, it's very difficult to identify whether certain barriers that you're facing are because you're a woman or because you're doing research in feminism or because you're promoting open research and that's a faux pas in certain environments or because, you know, I have a foreign accent. That might be an issue for some people or, you know, a financial aspect like socioeconomic status, where you're coming from. So there, there's just so many different intersecting identities that can result in you feeling out of place in academia that I think I'm, I'm finding it very hard to to sort of come up with something that is directly related to one of the aspects uh, I don't know Maddie whether you you've got something yeah I guess it's kind of like it's the things that and it's not necessarily like you know like a moment where someone was like really explicitly horrible and sexist to me I think it's all these like these like things like all these things that happen like you know Oh, we're in a meeting. Oh, uh, Maddie, you're all right taking the notes, aren't you? Yeah, lovely, fabulous. And kind of like all these like small, subtle. Um, have we lost Alex? By the way, I think she's going to come down back. She's back. Okay. Unfortunately, we we lost Alex then. But uh, Maddie, you were making a point that there are kind of subtle, um, uh, almost like implicit things that happen to you, such as being called on to take notes at meetings. Yeah, so like being called on to take like, oh, Maddie, can you take the notes? And because one of the things that I come up against quite a lot is people, um, because, so because I'm like a young academic, so I'm like a young woman, um, then this kind of thing of like people asking me how old I am in like, like inappropriately, like conferences and like in meetings. And it's kind of, it's just really not the compliment that people think it is. Cause it's like, because the undertone is, what on earth are you doing here? 
you know, young, small woman. Um, and it's things like, I remember I gave a, a conference talk a few years ago and somebody said that they thought that my research was really cute. And they were like, oh, is this kind of, this like cute research, like it's kind of this cute thing. And I was talking about like the objectification of women and like sexual objectification, dehumanization. And it's kind of just like these, these things that just, that just happen. It's like all this kind of, oh, we've lost Alex again, all this undertone of like, oh that's cute like it's a it's this kind of not hugely serious just like nice thing rather than being a legitimate credible science and like you know we've seen in the past couple of months uh a few instances of like objectification research being kind of slammed by open science spaces and i think it is this thing where we're actually talking about stuff that's really serious like we're talking about stuff that matters and is serious and has implications and it's kind of passed off as like oh these cute they're running these cute experiments um so my experiences are mainly like these kind of small subtle put downs that have a very strong underlying message um, and I think that the more you talk about feminist open science, the more you talk about feminist research, the more your like radar for picking up on that stuff is really heightened, you know? And there's also the issue of, as you say, about the, the broken science aspect. Mm. Just for those listeners who don't know what broken science is, I wonder whether you could just give a, a summary of this. I would ask Alex, but I'm not sure whether she's joined us again. Oh, is she there? Yeah, sure. Um, so... I mean, I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, an, an expert in the topic, but I think the way we, we referred to it um, in the paper was along the lines of sort of the fact that open science spaces and well, you know, science spaces in general, but open science spaces in this, in this particular instance are governed often by sort of white male um, Western voices uh, and values. And this does um, sort of inhibit the participation uh, into the conversation regarding open research of, of many um, people who, who are part of a minority. Um, so I, I think it's, it's reached a point where, you know, open, open research is sometimes difficult to, to sort of criticize um, on, in online spaces uh, and it does, often lead to to you know hostility and and unkindness particularly in in online spaces and particularly towards uh marginalized researchers from often you know very well established academics at the top of their careers um and this has meant you know the silencing uh, of a lot of voices who who should be heard uh and has meant has meant that a lot of people are you know afraid of speaking up in in many instances because you know if you are speaking up from um a position of you know being an ecr with very little power speaking up against someone who is not being very kind to you on social media but who also wields a lot of power in academia that is not a position that is you know comfortable um to be in yeah, and I think it's important to note as well. So Kirsty Whitaker and Olivia Guest have coined this term. Um, and I think it's important to note that although bro, although it has, you know, the connotations, that actually it isn't necessarily like a, it's not like a man-woman thing. Like bros aren't necessarily men, you know? Like, yes, it's a very kind of like patriarchal, hostile, unkind, not very self-aware approach that actually I think you could categorize as being like scientific or academic bullying i think i think the two go hand in hand i think it's i think it's about bullying and i think it's a specific type of bullying 
in the open science spaces that is kind of done under this like facade of I'm being good for science. Like this is me flying the flag for robust methods where open science is kind of used as like the veneer to make this stuff feel palatable and legitimate. Whereas actually it's just, it's just bullying. It's just, it's just, it's just hostility. And, and I think cause something that, um, I've been like thinking about a lot as well is actually as I've, I've written about is it's this weird thing that I think comes from Twitter. And I think, you know, we, cause broken science kind of hashtag broken science, like started on Twitter. And um, so Olivia Guest coined the term using a hashtag on Twitter. And it's where, you know, hitter, uh, hitter, Twitter lends itself well to like short in real time, instantaneous, quick, here's my response. It's about like quick time, you tweet something and it disappears and then people respond. And actually that is, that's become how we engage in scientific critique. And yet the way that we write papers <laughs> is the complete opposite. That That's slow, thoughtful, and I guess open science is trying to advocate for more like slow science. You know, it's, it's slow, it's peer reviewed, it's thoughtful. And I think that one of the biggest contributors to this broken science culture is that the way that we engage in scholarly critique and the way that we engage in scholarship are completely and utterly at odds with one another. Um, so you'll often see if anything does get really serious on Twitter in terms of like people engaging in bullying, then the rebuttal is always like, oh, well, I've only got so many characters and it was just a quick thing and I didn't really think about it. And you're like, but actually what you're doing is engaging in quite a high level of like scholarly academic critique. And yeah, it's done in this really kind of like, fast this is my immediate thoughts it's like the people who you know they they say oh haven't yet read the paper but from looking at the abstract oh, this is load of rubbish and you're like when would you ever engage in properly critique when you haven't you haven't even read the paper and i think that it's this disconnect between slow science and fast critique that is that can cause a lot of problems and i think we see these problems on twitter and think don't want that to be me so whatever I can do to make that not me I'll do it you know I think it's basically you know the experience that we've all had at some point when you're you're at a conference and you're giving a talk and you you hear someone you know say the the famous you know I have more of a comment than a question and then they start your whole talk um it's sort of that but on a way wider scale because it's on the whole sort of social media to see it's distributed across academics throughout the world who are now all seeing that you know your work is rubbish uh, and they're all sort of piling on you with the same argument and I think the fact that it is done through um, social media removes the um, removes the person from from the center of it because yeah. it's much easier to you know say stuff like that and, and criticize someone's work and someone's um, you know, person a lot of the times when you're not seeing them and when you're not, it's not face to face. So I think it, it, it ends up sort of blurring the boundary between what is healthy and, and useful debate in academia and what is, as you, you've said, scientific bullying. Yeah. And it's like, I remember someone gave me some really good advice when I started um, peer reviewing where they said, you should only write something in a peer review if you're more than happy to sit down, have a coffee with the author and read out these comments in front of them. And if you're, if there's anything in that you think, mm, I'd feel like a bit of a dick if I had to say that out loud to someone, then reword it, change it. And I think it's a bit like that with 
Twitter is that we don't, you know, it becomes, it's kind of that whole disconnect between the scientist and the science. And it becomes about, oh, this is good for science, or this is a bad paper, blah, blah, blah. And we actually completely forget that there are like living, breathing, feeling humans who exist behind this. And when you're an early career researcher, and this is, you know, your baby has just been published and you're really proud of it, then that's even more difficult and hurtful. Um, yeah, and it's like, so there was something that um, I wrote with Karina Hurst, who's amazing and has done loads and loads of thinking about like slow science um, for the psychologist that argues this. It argues if you really, if you really have legitimate pressing concerns about a paper that is kind of like they've made an error, this is, you know, there's an error being made, um, then actually we do, we, you know, we have processes to um, deal with that. And those processes are commentaries on papers, getting in touch with authors, this kind of, you know, more um kind of proper way of doing things and i think that because academia lives a lot of its life on twitter then we've kind of forgotten that actually we have systems to catch these things and the system isn't you know write a tweet and tag your mates that's not how that's not how you know compassionate and robust robust transparent scholarship is done <laughs> If we can touch on another aspect of your paper, which is sort of uh, open science as an ally. So it confers a lot of benefits to, to, to people's careers and also their participation in research, as well as the discourse around uh, their research as well. Which uh, So I wonder whether you could just touch on and highlight, you know, the good things about open science that you have personally experienced uh, and also other more broader things so for example the you know the the, the big team science the collegiality the fact that you, you you know you yourselves got together a a ragbag team of like 10 ECR feminists you know and and wrote a brilliant paper so yeah just um touch on those kind of really positive aspects that hopefully other people can lend their force to to, to try and make more widespread yeah, so I think I think obviously a lot of the a lot of the benefits that open research confers are not necessarily unique to sort of feminist ECRs, but they are applicable. So obviously all of the things that have been mentioned in in papers that have referred to the sort of selfish reasons for engaging in open research, like you know, Florian Markovitz's paper and and not trying to plug, but you know, our recent paper. <laughs> um, so you know, the, the stuff that talks about how papers that engage with open research, whether that's, you know, open access papers or papers with open data and open code do have increased citation rates and do have more engagement from the academic um, community. And obviously the idea that the more um, academia moves towards open research, the more these benefits will increase for the ECRs who are um, adopting them. They will have more, um, you know, more opportunities for funding, more uh, opportunities to publish in journals who value good research. Um, and obviously, uh, yeah, sorry, I lost my thread of thought, so you can cut it there. <laughs> Go ahead, Maddie. Um, if yeah, you I'll pick up the point. If you get your train of thought back, then interrupt me. Um, but I think it's so funny because to me, the goals of feminist research, and the goals of open science 
are much the same. Like we're talking about, you know, can we slow down? Can we work together? Can we be collaborative? Can we take the emphasis away from the fact that there are these genius scientists and acknowledge that science is a team sport? Like, you know, even like openness, it's about accessibility. It's about, you know, people being able to access the science we're doing. Like that is a feminist thing. That is just ultimately a feminist thing. Um, and I think that that's why it's so curious that there are these, this kind of like broken science culture and why so many feminist ECRs don't feel able to participate. Cause I'm like, this is, we're talking about feminism. We're talking about openness. We're talking about accessibility. And I guess like in practical sense, there are also some, it's like this funny thing where there are some of the tools proposed by open science that I actually see as being really good allies to feminist researchers who have the credibility, credibility for their work questioned. Like for example, I now as a general rule, try and do most of my, slightly feministy like slash contentious papers as registered reports because then it's like talk to me about my methods you know talk to me about my research questions because if you know if there's no issue with my what i'm proposing then lovely you'll you'll publish it then won't you and it kind of it's it's almost like takes this whole accountability and kind of like holds up a mirror to journals and been like oh if there's no you know biases against this kind of research then oh well surely my registered report can get in principle acceptance then um and i think there's like clever things like that that actually you know we do know that there's biases against you know some kind of research questions and i guess the like publishing as a registered report puts is a clever way i think of using open science tools to like fix some of those problems by saying you know well tell tell me like this is my opportunity i haven't collected any data yet so what's wrong with this research question um and yeah i think it's things like and things like credit statements like it's about you know it's about making people's contribution like we're talking about invisible labor and hidden labor it's about finding a way of crediting and acknowledging that labor and that's a feminist thing like that is a feminist thing um so i think there's all these kind of in terms of like the actual tools there's kind of these pockets of places where actually the two are like very much aligned it's the kind of bigger messier cultural stuff that i think we still need to think about i do think that there are there are clever pockets of kind of open science like in terms of if you get rid of the whole what is it we're doing here the big like epistemological conversation twitter and just think like actually there are some tools here like there's a kind of toolkit of you know different ways of publishing different ways of pre-registering and open data and that kind of like even like you know open data in terms of um the other issue of like labor then it sometimes means you know the the labor of curating these data sets is then acknowledged and rewarded more um so i think that the whole like ultimately i i remain a strong advocate for open science and i think that we should teach it and i think that we should train it, and i think it's i think it's generally a wonderful thing I think that in terms of the actual tools, like in terms of should I make my data open, should I pre-register, should I do a registered report, and the whole kind of mission, I'm like still 100% on board with, and I would consider myself to be a quote-unquote open science person, because it seems to be like there's this identity thing that maybe we could talk about, but that's maybe a different podcast. Yeah, sorry, go on. Sorry, no, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 100%, exactly, I feel exactly the same, Uh, whereas like, you know, I do, I do, see myself as an open scientist or an open researcher if we want to use a more more inclusive term Um, and I feel like these conversations are so 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 necessary because we don't what we don't want to do is 
turn our head away from all of the sort of perceived perhaps disadvantages and, and perhaps barriers, pretend that they don't exist and just march forward with the idea that this will um, ultimately improve science. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is we want to have these conversations because that's ultimately going to lead to sort of open science that is more inclusive, that's more accessible, that's more sort of flexible and diverse. Yeah. And that is going to be better, not just for research, but also for researchers. Yeah, and I guess that that's why we have, like, in this podcast and also in the paper, concentrate quite heavily on, like, the kind of challenges or barriers because we kind of take for granted, like, oh, we know that this is, like, a good thing. You know, like, it's a good thing and, like, open science is a, it's a good thing, generally. It's a good thing. You know, like, we want people to be able to access the research that we do. We want credit to be awarded in the appropriate ways. We want the hidden labour to be made explicit and to open we want our methods to be transparent like we want science to be like good you know like we want good science so i think the whole argument for like is open science a good thing like it's been made like we've we've had that i mean the royal we have had that conversation and i guess that what because this i think it's also important to know that this paper is part of a special issue of psychology of women quarterly that's about the tensions and challenges of open science with feminist methods and there's all kinds of papers they're beautiful papers in that special issue that are like okay but let's talk about like ethics and let's talk about representation and let's and i guess that our contribution was kind of to all the early career researchers out there who identify as a feminist we get it we get that it's more difficult than just like off you go do, do the stuff because we've identified that it's a good thing um but yeah, I still think that a lot of, like I'm still excited by open science spaces and still I'm like part of this conversation. I just think that sometimes we just need to chill out and slow down a bit and think about who's being silenced or ignored and who this is actually for and who's setting the agenda and those kind of things. Um, so I, I obviously, um, I've worked with you, Alex, and I, I've sort of almost worked with you, Maddie, although I bailed at the last minute because I had like a <laughs> horrible uh, workload issues. Um, but you both seem really prolific uh, researchers and particularly you, Maddie, you seem to be like on every other paper that I see on Twitter. And, uh, and you've recently got a, a new book. Is that right, Maddie? I do, yeah. So a, a feminist companion to social psychology is... Um, it was published last year and it's basically trying to do actually a lot of stuff that we've talked about in this podcast like it's trying to offer a different fun critical perspective of social psychology generally so yeah wonderful and, and I guess my my point is is that I mean given your track record and and your your growing um, sort of open science and research credentials I mean, do you ever get sort of imposter syndrome? Do you ever doubt yourself or or have issues with self-confidence? I find this question funny because I think I got imposter syndrome about 10 minutes ago when Maddie used the word epistemological and I was like, <laughs> this conversation. Um, yeah, 100%. Like, I think, I think the reason why I'm finding this conversation funny is that I think the way I sometimes see it is that everyone who's, you know, talking about having imposter syndrome is just an incredible, inspiring 
person who's just playing down their strengths, whereas I'm just an actual imposter, but no one knows. <laughs> like that's how I always I always see it. And I don't know whether that is, you know, whether gender contributes to that or whether, you know, part of it is being Eastern European, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where I only know one person who finished high school, let alone um, a PhD. I didn't really do much science uh, in my high school. So my science foundation is not as strong as it should be. Um, so yeah, 100% experience imposter syndrome on, on a daily basis. <laughs> Don't know about you, Maddie. Yeah, I think, so I have a very strange relationship with imposter syndrome and I'm actually about to start a project, lol, about imposter syndrome <laughs> because of these conversations that I've been having about it, where I think that sometimes, I think because so many people talk about imposter syndrome and, and particularly with kind of like high achieving women, because I think that the whole imposter syndrome discourse started in the context of like high achieving women feeling like they don't belong da, 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 da. and I do have I don't know if it's like concerns or just like thoughts and feelings about the extent to which that now like having imposter syndrome so the kind of boiling down to like feeling that you're not worthy to be somewhere is a kind of like assumed almost like rite of passage do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, and it's kind of that thing where sometimes I think there's that many people asking me if I feel like I don't belong here. Like, do, do I not belong? <laughs> do I not belong here? And I guess it's like that sometimes that weird thing where um, it's, it's like, like, for example, I've like very recently got um, like my first like big girl job, like post PhD job. And like loads of people have been saying to me like, oh, does it feel real? Do you feel like, do you feel like you've earned it? Like does, and it's like a really, uncomfortable thing to say yes and to be like oh but I kind of but I like did because I like did the work and that's led to and I think it's this weird much more like complicated thing where sitting with feeling like oh but I did really earn this and I like got it because I earned it not because it was luck not because it was fate and not because I'm imposter is I think because imposter syndrome like in a, in a really wonderful way is so widely talked about that then saying the opposite and saying like Oh, but I earned my place here is becomes a lot more uncomfortable to say. Do you know, does that, does that make sense? Where it's kind of like, like, I think it's a much more palatable answer to say, um, oh, it, oh, it feels like complete luck and I don't know how I did it. And oh, he like, oh, and I feel like I've had that feeling before. And it's like this weird time now where it's really difficult to, to kind of take ownership of like, oh, but I did the work that led to this. And I like, no, I did the work and I don't feel like this was a fluke because I like did the work, you know, and it's like that really, do you know, I don't know if this is like, if this is like making sense, but does that make sense to you, Alex, in any way? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. But I think the way, the way I'm seeing it is I think going, going back to what we were talking about with, with Twitter earlier is that part of it is contributed to by that. Cause you know, you go on Twitter and you see um, a sort of reel of everyone's successes and yeah. you know, papers and jobs that they got and and achievements and awards and everything and obviously you know each one of those posts is a different person but I think in our minds it sort of lumps into this idea of the super scientist who has all of the positive qualities who's you know intelligent and hardworking and like has everything that you will never have like you might you know I consider myself to be very hardworking and and you know I would say that I am in the place that I'm in today obviously because of luck and privilege but also because I am I am hardworking and that's contributed to it 
do I think that I have all of the other qualities that this magical, um, you know, researcher that doesn't exist, but is formed out of all of these uh, Twitter posts that I'm seeing has probably not. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really complex. Because I think, like, if some if you said to me, Oh, do I ever, you know, stand up to give a lecture and think, why on earth am I giving a lecture here for? Like I, <laughs> like how am I like it, or you know giving like a conference talk and being like, what am I doing in the room with these people? Like I'm, you know, someone's gonna someone that whole thing of like someone's gonna find me out or it's gonna be wrong or I'm gonna have like got it wrong or there's gonna be like an error. I think is like is always kind of simmering under the surface. But if you said, do I feel like I don't know some of the things that I've achieved is due to luck and chance and fluke? then I think it's, I'm like, no, well, like, no, like, you know, sometimes there's this kind of feeling of like, oh God, am I, you know, kidding myself? But that ultimate kind of, did I, was I handed this or did I work for it? Then I'm like, I think it actually takes a bit of like guts maybe to be like, oh no, I'm going to completely take ownership for the fact that I like worked for this. And it's like, Alex, like I remember when you and I both recently were like submitting our theses, theses, whatever um yeah 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 and we were like talking to each other because we were both kind of like slightly out of sync and you did it before me where we were like this is a really big deal and like you did this and and you know this you did this and i think trying to reclaim that sense of like i did this and i have ownership over what i did that i think sometimes the imposter syndrome discourse can like dilute a little bit do you know what i mean um yeah no no, no I, fu I fully do and i think listening to you has just sort of made me realize that perhaps we need to be more aware of our strengths and say yes I am very good at doing x or I'm very good at doing y but I might not be as good as someone else at this other aspect and that's okay because that's why that's why we work in teams that's why we don't work alone in science because everyone's good at, at something else and I think for me personally I don't feel imposter syndrome when I'm writing. I'm, I'm confident around sort of my capacity to write. I feel a lot of imposter syndrome when I speak because I feel like partly perhaps it's a language thing. I have been here for about 10 years, but obviously, you know, it's not my first language. So I don't always, when, when you know, listening to people like you, Maddie, who I, I think you're, you're a great speaker, um, then I do feel imposter syndrome because I know I'm, I don't sound like that. And that's okay. Yeah, I think that that's, that's I mean, for, thank you. I think that you're a wonderful speaker and I think that we work well together. And I think for me, it's also like, because as I'm moving more into like big science, team science, leading on stuff, I think that's when it's been a real dose of imposter syndrome because I look around and think, you know, because team science is all about everyone has expertise, tell us your expertise, we'll put it all together in a nice puzzle and then we'll have the perfect dream team because everyone's doing what they do. And I think it's that initial kind of like hearing about other people's expertise, thinking, why am I the one who's best placed? Or why did we decide that I was the best place to like lead this ship? Um, and trying to grapple with like, oh, it's cause you know, cause I'm good at like the administrative stuff and the writing stuff and the people stuff rather than it's like, oh, because the, as the, like, like with for, framework for open and reproducible research training, who we, we have to mention because they're amazing. Like they do very, big science stuff in terms of teaching um and their whole philosophy is like people have expertise so bring their expertise and i think it's trying to reframe it as like oh i have expertise in this one thing but i don't need to know 
everything. And I think a lot of academia makes you feel like you just need to know everything. You need to be an expert in everything. And I think that that's why I really like team science approaches because you just have to take ownership over the thing that you do really well and everyone else can sort out the stuff that you have no idea about. And like, that's okay, you know? Brilliant. I, I totally agree. And I'm glad you said that because I think there is a healthy collective rejection of this sort of relentless focus on the individual, this heroic mm. individual in research. But sometimes it's okay to be the person who has the specialist expertise that really has a substantive and instrumental impact on a project. There is always going to be a lead author or a joint lead author, and that's that's okay. It's just everything in moderation. And I think, uh, you know, you don't have to constantly hide your light under a bushel because, um, because you are very talented, you know, or you are a gifted researcher and that's okay. Um, right, well, I think on that note, uh, Alex and Maddie, thank you very much, both of you, for joining today. Um, and um, just so that everybody um, knows where to find you. So, Maddie and Alex, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Uh, do you want to shout out your Twitter handles? Yeah, sure. So, uh, mine is at Ale spelled like ale but pronounced ale basically alex without the x so ale.lotaresco uh find google it and find a way to spell it so i don't have to do it now <laughs> maddie and i am at maddie m-a-d-d-i no e just the i underscore pow so like first bit of pow and all p-o-w um and i'm on twitter a lot i love a i love a tweet um and you, oh, and you can buy my book. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to make sure. <laughs> yeah, before the show, we had to make sure that we plug the book because Maddie is uh, typically very uh, humble and modest about these things. But you have to own it, Maddie. You have to own that book. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so where can they get that book from? Um, they can get it from Amazon. They can, they can Amazon Prime it. Maybe here tomorrow if you want. Yeah, um, Amazon, or online. Amazon Primed it just now. So it's coming. If Amazon Primed it, I'll, like, I'll get my 30p, whatever it is. Um, and you can get it from like Waterstones, WH Smith, Amazon.com. If you're in the US and you're struggling, um, just let me know because I've got different ways, but you should be able to get it on all the Amazons. And um, yeah, oh, and if you if you want to read it, but I think it's like 19.99. Um, but if that's a challenge for you, uh, just drop me a DM and I can, we, we, I have various hidden discount codes that I'm not supposed to give out that we can do that as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, both. And uh, I really, really appreciate this. And hopefully a lot of people will get a lot of things from this, uh, from this episode. So thank you again and uh, have a lovely weekend. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this. No, me too. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Maddie. No thank you. All right. Awesome.